and I identified some things that he was eating, the foods he was eating. You know, there's three things in particular that we needed to get rid of. And I said, if you get rid of these things, I promise you we're going to see a difference. But it wouldn't have made anywhere near the difference if I hadn't actually pinpointed and said to Jordan, do you think it's easier to get sick than to tell people no, that you love and respect? And his fiance, who's now his wife and the mother of his child, um, was with him at the time when we were having a session and they were both, it was like, I'd just taken a, you know, a big leaf blower and blew them off their chairs. Wow. Um, and they're like, Oh my God, that's exactly what it was. And so when he had that realization and that he had to start following his own soul mm. calling, making those changes of giving up what it was at the time, he was overusing red wine, chocolate and coffee, <laughs> And within, uh, I think it was like six weeks, he'd lost 20 pounds, um, you know, and his, all symptoms of glandular fever and chronic fatigue were gone in three weeks. Welcome to the Pave Your Paradise podcast. I'm Mandy Ross, international media personality, speaker, writer, life cheerleader, and coach. Each episode, I'll share a guest or an idea to help you blast through your limiting beliefs, nourish your soul, and connect with yourself to take your relationships, health, business, and life to a next level. We don't play small. We're meant for great things. We take our struggles and turn them into slam dunk successes. This is the place for you to create your best you so you can pave your personal path to paradise. Are you with me? Let's do this. Hello and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in to Pave Your Paradise podcast. If you're new to the show, I'm Mandy Ross, host of this amazing space for you guys to up-level your relationships, your health, your business, and your life. And I want to know, how are you tuning in right now? Are you guys on a walk? Are you in the car? Are you running around and just listening for some soul nourishment and body nourishment and mind nourishment? Or... Are you tuning in with someone else today? Please let me know by tagging me on social media at Mandy J. Ross and at Pave Your Paradise and let me know. So major news for you guys. I told you a little while back that I had started my Patreon account, so it's now up and I'm ready to serve you even more through it. There's lots of additional resources I'll be sharing on it. So for you to join the official Pave Your Paradise community, where you'll be receiving tons of self-growth, self-love, and self-compassion tips, techniques, and tools for your personal development toolbox, also to connect with me in live group calls and coaching, plus be supporting the podcast and myself to raise awareness on self-love and self-compassion and connection, please visit my new page at www.patreon.com slash Mandy J. Ross. <laughs> and now I am thrilled to feature a special guest on today's episode, Sherry Strong, who's a food philosopher and founder of the Sweet Freedom Project. So many of you have reached out about nutrition and diet in particular, so I'm thrilled to bring you a leading expert on the topic. Plus, you all know how much I nerd out over nutrient-dense food and philosophy chat. 
Cherry is a food philosopher, nutritionist, chef, and founder of the Sweet Freedom Project, dedicated to helping 1 million plus people beat sugar addiction. She's the former Victorian chair of Nutrition Australia, the past president of Slow Food Melbourne, and was the curator and co-founder of the World Wellness Project. She's taught at universities here in Canada and Australia, as well as consulted to government on nutritional policies. Her book, Return to Food, The Life-Changing Anti-Diet Details, the philosophies and strategies that helped her have her dress size without dieting. When she's not working, you'll find her at a farmer's market, cooking, painting, or writing a novel and script for a romantic comedy. So guys, I am super stoked to be featuring her and her amazing work, and I also get to offer you guys 33% off the cost of her life-changing Sweet Freedom program. If you want to ditch the yo-yo diets, break free from sugar addiction, and still be able to walk past your favorite treats that used to be irresistible to you without experiencing any sugar cravings, this program is for you. Most importantly, if you are craving freedom in your life, please check out Sherry's incredible support and resource systems created just for you to live the sweet lives. I've included links below for you to join. So Sherry's a food philosopher, nutritionist, chef, founder of the Sweet Freedom Project, and so much more. We actually met through a mutual connection. Upon further looking into what she was up to, I knew I had to have her on the show for you guys. Her title, Food Philosopher, is quite perfect for her, as she's a leading expert on the topic of sugar addiction and nourishment. Because of her background from the nutritional world and her own personal struggle and transformational journey with sugar addiction and obesity, she is full of insight and inspiration. She's someone who I completely appreciate and respect for what she's creating in this world, especially the positive impact she's having on awareness around the food we eat and how we're nourishing our bodies and providing solutions to those who are struggling. Her strategies for living the free and sweet life are practical, easily digestible, and can have a huge positive impact on your life, so I had to share her with you. I want to continue bringing on expert guests that will help you, inspire you, and empower you, and Sherry Strong is a breathing, living, walking example of paving your own path to paradise. We dive deep in this episode into her personal journey with sugar addiction, trauma and healing your pain points. We go right into the nitty gritty of what's happening to your mind and body when you consume sugar, techniques that you can start using today to help nourish yourself, plus proactive measures you can take to help heal what's really eating at you, and so many other delicious topics. So I hope you all enjoy this interview as much as I did with Sherry Strong. Welcome to the show, Sherry. It is such a pleasure to have you on Pave Your Paradise podcast. Thank you for having me, Mandy. So the first thing that I always ask every guest on the show is what was the first thing you did when you woke up this morning? <laughs> I, I pray. I, I um, scroll through and basically cover what I'm grateful for, what I wish to manifest in the world, how I wish to be of more service and help. Oh, I love that. That's such a beautiful way to start the day. And aside from work, what gets you up in the morning? Oh, I just think the will to, to, it's a very human will to, to want to live and be alive. Absolutely. What has been one of the highlights of your week? 
crikey. Um, I'm working on a script for a romantic comedy um, drama, and I had my script writing coach over for dinner last night. So that was Ooh, that sounds juicy. I like rom-coms. <laughs> That's awesome. Sounds like very creative juices were flowing for you. I would love it right now if you could share with the Pave Your Paradise podcast audience a bit about yourself, your background, and your story. So I often will, when I'm speaking professionally, I'll start my presentation with, I, I basically was born an addict, addicted to the world's most dangerous drug that's killing more people on the planet than any other drug in the world. And um, that drug is sugar. And for most of my life, I struggled with sugar addiction. And that impacted my life in many ways. My brain, my ability to think, my moods, my memory, um, my energy levels. Um, probably the biggest thing was depression. I really struggled with mm. depression. And even though at one time in my life, I was twice my present size, um, I would actually say that depression was the worst part of that. So I basically came about this work very honestly. I started out as a chef and um, it was like professional license to eat. And that didn't make me a happy person. And then I moved on to become a nutritionist. I studied um, at Deakin University in Australia, realized the classic system of uh, training people to become dietitians and nutritionists was very industry influenced and went on a different path, but I eventually ended up losing the weight, becoming the Victorian Chair of Nutrition Australia and the Melbourne President of Slow Food and the curator and co-founder of World Wellness Project. And went on to write a book called Return to Food, The Life-Changing Anti-Diet. And all of this time, I still had a dirty little secret in that I was still addicted to sugar. So I wasn't, you know, freebasing donuts and starting off the morning with a liter of ice cream like I used to. But I still was kind of just wanting it with one thing here and one thing there, a glass of wine here, gin and tonic there, croissant at the market, to the point where I was still addicted to sugar. And it wasn't until I almost lost my mom from complications due to a compromised immune system because of eating sugar, that I decided to face the music myself and start looking at it because I knew that there are millions of people across the world that need help with that. Oh my goodness, Sherry. There's so much I want to dive into there. Wow. Thank you so much, first of all, for sharing your story. I really appreciate your vulnerability and just your transparency in doing so. I mean, that's a beautiful nutshell of a journey. I know there's probably so much we could go into, but I definitely have a few follow-up questions to that. First off, when did you become aware of your addiction? Well... I think I always knew. I mean, even when I was young, I remember being 50, 16 and driving and the light, the sunlight was so excruciating. I was experiencing extreme light sensitivity and that's, it was a pre-diabetic mm. symptom. So as young as then I knew um, that I had a problem with sugar and at 14, I was diagnosed with depression and um I had suicidal thoughts and um, they suggested a hypoglycemic diet, which is really just a, a way of them saying you're eating too much. Sugar. Yeah. <laughs> um, so from a young age, I, I knew. I'm really curious because I really am, am heavily into the, the inner child work. Do you remember a time in your childhood that you can pinpoint that 
had something to do with this issue that you experienced in life with sugar? Like, do you remember uh, like something in your childhood where you can go like, aha, I wish back then I would have been able to do something? The question you ask is an excellent question. I mean, and it's really where most of us should be starting when we're talking about our relationship with food. If I go into the kind of the, the real source of it, I was third born of four children to a mother who was 20 when she had me. So she had a four-year-old and a six-year-old. She was separated from my father and they had a very turbulent relationship. And so I came into the world, like not because my mom didn't have any capacity to not love. She's, she's like, I referred to her as a heart on two legs, but she had very limited skills and resources, you know, to cope with it. So I wasn't a child that, Oh, great. Another baby. It was like, Oh shit, another baby. And so I was formula fed and my siblings were all breastfed. So formula in the sixties basically had refined sugars, oil, salts, grains, and chemicals in it. It, it was what I call the legal. Wow. You combine the emotional turmoil of going, you know, coming into that environment with, um, uh, malnutrition mentally emotionally spiritually and physically and it's not hard to imagine a child becoming very dependent on something that makes them feel good instantly Mm -hmm. wow oh my goodness sherry my heart is just like i just want to give you a squeezer hug right now thank you for sharing that and i love how you didn't just focus on the food because let's be real you know as someone with a nutritional background as well as yourself I mean, food is never the issue. I mean, the real source of of pain, the real starving is for something so much deeper and greater. So do you want to go into that a little bit? Happy to. Um, And that's that's what I noticed, because when I first started working with clients, I had a doctor and a dietitian starting. um, They started to send me clients who had eating disorders and weight management issues and things like that. And when I started to work with them, I realized very quickly that it wasn't about the food even though I had like I was still working through my own stuff while I was doing this but I realized that if I just showed them what to eat they'd have like uh, if I'm looking at a graph chart they'd have 20% success when I taught them about nutrition uh, they had maybe 30% success and I'm talking about managing to change behaviors long term When I started to teach them about food philosophy and understanding how we're meant to eat as the human species, based on philosophies that I've developed over the last 20 years, they were up around the 40 to 50% success mark. When I showed them how to cook, it was 60 to 75%. But it wasn't until I started to work on a concept that I call hypernourishment, where I started to help them identify where in their lives they were malnourished mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically and had toxic influences mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. When we started to look at those areas and start to nourish them in each of those, particularly the mental, emotional, spiritual side of things, removing the toxic influences, their ability to make changes in the physical became so much easier and was much more likely to last in the long term. And then it was very much dependent on the work they were doing, you know, and and working it because there are no magic cures. There's no such thing as a diet that works long-term unless you do the inner work, you know, the whole fad of keto and, and, you know, paleo, they work great for a while because people, if they're doing it properly, stop eating processed foods. Um, If they 
don't do it properly. They eat processed foods and they feel good for a very short, short time and then be chasing the high they initially got when their body started to get clean. But they always will go back to those behaviors that they engaged in that created the problems in the first place if they don't address the source of the problems. What a plethora of knowledge right there. I can't help but see the synergy in a program I created too called Operation Soul Nourishment. And it was exactly on that same basis where it's literally, I mean, it's a nourishing of the body, the mind, the spirit, the heart. And, and you know, I love your philosophy around having even tested each group, like to see how effective it would be if... And then you did all those random tests. I'm curious what your results ended up being with the people that you did the deep diving type work with to change their behaviors and their thought patterns. Like what was that experience like and what were some of your findings? Well, it really varied for, um, for each person. So very early on, I remember working with a, a guy named Jordan who worked in the family insurance business, hugely successful. His parents hired me. I was, you know, I was um, keynote speaking in Australia. I lived there for 22 years and um, I had done several speaking engagements for their company. And one day the father, Terry, came to me and he said, look, you know, our son's got chronic fatigue and glandular fever and the doctors are saying that it's going to take eight months on a certain medi- medication before he's going to start feeling better. Can you, would you consider working with him? So I was like, yeah, I'd love to love to help out beautiful family. So Jordan was this guy who like everybody loved. He's just so beautiful soul inside and out, kind, you know, funny, you know, generous, and everyone wanted to work with him. He had, you know, souls calling and his father wanted him to work in the family business and, you know, take that over when, when he retired. And then he had a bunch of other people who wanted him to work. Um, and I identified some things that he was eating, the foods he was eating, you know, there's three things in particular that we needed to get rid of. And I said, if you get rid of these things, I promise you, we're going to see a difference, but it wouldn't have made anywhere near the difference if I hadn't actually pinpointed and said to Jordan, do you think it's easier to get sick than to tell people no, that you love and respect and his fiance, who's now his wife and the mother of his child um, was with him at the time when we were having a session and they were both, it was like, I'd just taken a, you know, a big leaf blower and blew them off their chairs. Wow. Um, and they're like, Oh my God, that's exactly what it was. And so when he had that realization and that he had to start following his own soul mm. calling, making those changes of giving up what it was at the time, he was overusing red wine, chocolate and coffee <laughs> And within, uh, I think it was like six weeks, he'd lost 20 pounds, um, you know, and all symptoms of glandular fever and chronic fatigue were gone in three weeks. Wow. So, and he really felt he got his life. Oh my goodness. Thank you for sharing that story. Wow. What a powerful message to share with my audience in terms of don't look at the food in particular in this scenario, but don't always look at what it is you're basically using as a band-aid. Look at like, you have to be able to self-discover. You have to be able to question, are you using this to numb something else? 
And in this case, I know so many people, I think, who can resonate with being a chronic people pleaser and like literally their throat chakra will close up when they're confronted with any sort of something that's making them uncomfortable. They would rather literally swallow their own desires than have to say no. So rather than do that and follow, say, the family path or someone else's wishes, they would rather forego their own deepest desires and it manifests in this Mm -hmm. addictive tendency whether it's food or drugs or you know sex or gambling or whatever it looks like on the outside how amazing is that that if we simply started to ask ourselves is this a cover-up for something much deeper that we need to look into and explore Oh, I love that, Sherry. So, okay. So that's, I mean, obviously you've gone through your own insane journey because you went through the sort of like, I always call it the studious way of going about a passion. So you did the schooling, you got on all these boards, you were doing all the work, all of that stuff. And then something still didn't feel aligned for you. Something didn't feel quite right. So at what point and what did that experience feel and look like for you when you had that aha moment where you were like, hmm, I've done all the work as far as the schooling and sort of on paper, everything looks great, but there's still something missing here. And I need to make a really profound positive impact on the world by doing things differently my own way. What was that like for you? One of the big tenets of the work I do with people and, and the program that I run is getting people to tell the truth. Particularly women of my generation uh, have been conditioned almost from birth to not tell the truth. And certainly when it comes to their shameful things, shameful parts or the things they're uncomfortable with or their disowned parts. And for me, I had spent a lifetime trying to be good. So when I left school, I studied to become a missionary. I wanted to be able to help the world in some way, even though I had, you know, creative talents, I denied myself what I really wanted to do, um, which was become a fashion designer or folk singer, songwriter. Um, And I went to help people find God. Now, I was doing that to cover up my shame-based parts. Mm. And although I left religious life, I like to joke and say I I discovered the missionary position and found it much more interesting than the missionary vocation and left religious life and went to Australia. I then moved into this field where I wanted to get, you know, um, I loved food. Like, I really do believe, I don't know about past lives and future lives. Like, I can't scientifically prove it. I believe there is such a thing. And if there is such a thing, I know I came to this incarnation. for. The oh, my food. goodness. I, I so always joke I, that food is my love language. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. And just like, you know, some people are race car drivers and they take certain risks with race car driving. And some people, you know, climb mountains and, you know, rock climbers and things like that. I really do believe that my first love and passion has always been about food. And it's not always been about, you know, food being a conduit for just health. I, I know the, the camp of just eat to live, but I'm definitely more in the camp of live to eat. And I think I denied that for myself for a long Mm. time and I didn't actually appreciate and understand how you can live in the duality of, yeah, I want to be healthy, but I also have the chef side of me that I really love food um, as, as a thing that actually brings me joy, not just as a form of escape, 
but because just like a race car driver gets joy from and a thrill from speed, I have a joy in a level that is feels like a life's calling. So when I started to tell the truth to myself that no, I'm not a perfect eater. I don't aspire to be a perfect eater. I aspire to live a life that is centered around, you know, food as as a conduit for pleasure, um, but the balance of experiencing pleasure in the moment and after I've eaten it as well as the next morning when I wake up, but also the whole social connection, the piece that we're a species that we're meant to eat together. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that piece and really starting to look at it holistically and just accepting the, the fact that I'm not going to look like someone who is devoting their life to having a perfect figure. And when I let go of that, like when I let go of the fact that I can actually have an existence where I can be existence, where I can be truly authentic to myself and enjoy food, but find the balance of not just enjoying it indiscriminate of how it actually impacts my body and the planet, but to find the balance of all the beautiful aspects of how it can actually impact my life that I can start to self-actualize by being truthful, honest, and authentic. And you, you actually say, you know, that one of the things you're committed to, particularly with this podcast, is to create a life that you absolutely mm-hmm. love. Well, you can never love your life if you're hiding out, right? And if you're just using food as a means of distraction and avoidance, you're not truly living. Um, so it's about finding that balance of, of, uh, for me, where that is my passion in life, it's something that I just absolutely, you know, there's so much about it. I geek out about the science, you know, behind, you know, the food chemistry piece. I love the anthropological, the sociological side of things. I love the philosophical side of things. I love the emotional, you know, side, the, you know, the mental piece around food, the spiritual piece around food. And which is why I branded myself for the last 20 years as a food philosopher it's not just a branding term I've written a book that really is a food philosophy book Um, and so I think the piece for me the cornerstone and what I find that works for most people is when you can actually admit who you are in your entirety you know the bits you disown as well as the bits that you love and you start to step into that embrace that and accept that there is a level of freedom that comes with that, that, you know, no puritanical, healthy relationship with food could ever achieve for you. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, my goodness. I loved, <laughs> loved hearing you share that because for me, what comes up just when you're sharing and I'm actively listening, I just have this word nourish. Like you represent nourishment on such a deep and profound level because you're right. Food is just food is just food, but everything around and that surrounds food is so nourishing for us. Food itself is very nourishing as well, but it's so much more than just food. And so I love, I love hearing where this all came from and Please, please, please share with my listeners what it is that you have created today. I know you wrote a book and now you have a really amazing program that you're offering. And also, I do want you to touch on, because I I don't want anyone listening out there to think that you're anti-sugar, what your kind of philosophy around sugar and balance is, and then how that incorporates into the program that you're offering now. 
Thank you. Thanks for that invitation. So I'll start off with your last part of the question because I think it's really important and relevant. I like how you were, you frame things as sugarless, um, and we use the term sugar-free, not as in being completely 100% sugar-free, but being free of the hold that sugar has on you. So in order to be free of the hold that sugar has on you, there's a few things that you need to do. And we start people off with a seven-day challenge to get them to start to, in a sense, essentially what you're saying, the sugar less, to have less sugar. So it's a lot of people, To our program's called Sweet Freedom, and it's basically helping people end sugar addiction for good and end the hold that sugar has on them and to actually them be the boss of sugar, not sugar be the boss of them. And so we start off by getting people to lessen the amount of sugar they're having because a lot of people go, I can't even consider giving up sugar for uh-huh. one day. And I say, okay, cool. But you could probably start by having less. And then once we get them to have less, we start to get them to do what I call the replace principle. So start to replace the refined sugars, which are like the cocaine and the uh, heroin of the sugar. Just for the audience to to really understand specifics, can you give some actual food examples when you're talking about the different types of sugar? Basically, anything that's white, we avoid. Okay, so any of the... um, Highly processed sugar, so white sugars, uh, cane sugar, it doesn't matter the source. If you take a natural substance that has color in it in nature and you refine it to the point where it's white, it doesn't matter if it's stevia or cane or um, corn or anything. Um, what happens is you take it from a natural substance that your body can actually deal with and you turn it into a refined, addictive, and toxic substance. So if you think about it, opium sap in its natural state is not addictive or toxic, even though it has opiates in it. Uh, Wheat is not addictive and toxic if you chew on a blade of wheat, but it has opiates in it, okay? So what happens is when you actually take those things and sugar cane that has lots of nutrients in it in a natural substance, and you start to remove all the macro and micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals, the colors and flavors and aroma compounds from it, till you end up with a pure white substance, you make it something that's toxic and addictive to the body. So opium sap in nature, not a problem. Uh, highly refined into the form of heroin, a problem. <laughs> Coca leaves, you can chew on them while you're hiking in you know, South America, not a problem. Refining it to the point of whiteness um, makes it uh, toxic and addictive. Now here's the, the crunchy part is that refined sugar, we tend to think of as an innocuous substance, that it's not so harmful. But what we know now, we can see from brain scans, is that it lights up the brain's dopamine, uh, dopamine receptors eight times more than cocaine does. That doesn't mean it's eight times more addictive. But what I will tell you is that it is eight times more exciting to the brain to have. And I've interviewed... I've had clients who were crack addicts, like cocaine addicts, who found it easier to give up cocaine than to give up refined Uh sugar. So we get them off of the refined sugar and we get them into natural sugars. We're reducing the amounts and we're now starting to upgrade their choices around what they're having that's sweet. And while we're doing this, we're starting to get them to nourish themselves. So the body will stop eating when it's nourished. It will never be satisfied until it's nourished, which is why you can go through a drive-through and have a three-course meal that's had all of its nutrients stripped. And then um, it's basically highly refined and they replace it with colors and flavors and aroma compounds that simulate 
the fact that, you know, makes you think you're eating real food. And you can have three courses and literally an hour later, or sometimes even less, be going to the fridge and looking for something to eat. And that signal is not just an addictive signal. It's basically your body's not Mm. nourished. And so it will never shut off until you nourish it. So what we do is we start to teach people how to nourish. I just did a masterclass series where I did three recipes, um, a smoothie, a soup, and a salad. And I, I often will tell people, what you're having in these three recipes that I'm going to encourage you to start incorporating throughout your day and your week is more nutrients than many North Americans are actually getting in an entire week and sometimes in some cases a month. So we teach people how to nourish themselves and then we move on to the process of showing people how to do that with the hypernourishment, the mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, and particularly to take out the toxic influences and I know you're a big believer in fulfilling our soul's destiny um, and living authentically and doing those things. And I think many of us have been caught in the trap of eating and self-soothing when we know we're not on our life's path. So there's many aspects to what we do. We work with people long-term, not just, you know, for seven days or eight weeks. They become part of our tribe. But the whole process is basically about helping you step into the life you're meant to be living to actually, you know, eat from a place of self-love. And when we start to get people to do that, they experience changes, Mm. radical changes initially, but more importantly to me than weight loss is long-term changes that where they actually start to step into. And isn't that the sweet life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is absolute liberty and freedom yes sherry oh i'm totally nerding out by the way on the nutritional <laughs> things that you're talking about i'm such a food nerd and nutrition nerd it's hilarious so i i really appreciate you sharing that so i guess one of the biggest questions that popped up for me is like what do you consider i don't want to use the word safe because i think there's a bad connotation with that what do you consider a quote-unquote healthier uh sugar that we could consume not copious amounts of but what do you consider a better sugar alternative for us yeah so we have an, uh, I, I teach, when I teach philosophically, I help people understand how we're meant to eat as the human species and how we've eaten, you know, um, in a way that not just sustained life for, you know, a long life, but a life free of disease. When you start to look at over a period of year, how much sugar would you actually consume in nature? How much of it and what would that look like? So the first source of sugar we would have for most of mm-hmm. us is fruit. And that, that we ate seasonally, right? Um, and it was, you know, wasn't available 365 days a year. So I get people to just start to reframe. How much sugar would you actually be eating? How many, you know, pieces of fruit would you have 365 days a year if you had to source it yourself and store it yourself or dry it and preserve it? So we get people thinking differently about sugar. And then I don't tell people what they should and shouldn't have. I show people how we ate optimally as the human species, and I get people to start making empowered choices. So fruit is our number one kind of most natural access source of sugar. And then um, if I'm getting people to start to use the replace principle and not have refined sugars and, you know, in their coffees and things like that, I get them to look at things like maple syrup. Uh, coconut palm sugar and honey um, because those those are minimally processed sugars i'm not a big fan of any of the artificial sweeteners in fact i 
I think they're they're just as dangerous and in some ways for our health as um, more dangerous than refined mm-hmm. sugar. Um, and I lump in urethritol, all the alcohol sugars and the white stevia in that as well. So they're things that we would never consume in nature and we could never make them in the forms that mm-hmm. we have them. So you like to stick um, as, clo- you know, as close naturally. to coming from the earth as possible. That's the main kind of takeaway. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. as far as any advice you would have like takeaways that people could even start doing today? Is there one thing that you would suggest? Like how would someone even know that they're addicted to sugar? Because I feel like it's so prevalent in our diets nowadays. Like how can someone even identify that they are having a problem with it? The, the first kind of way you can actually look at it is go, okay, what if sugar was actually illegal tomorrow and you couldn't access it? So you had nothing in your your cupboards that had sugar in it or refined sugar. In. And to get people to the place of actually awareness, that's the question where we started. So start to look through your pantry, start to look at the ingredient list, start to look at things and it will blow you away that sugar's in almost everything. It's in 80% of everything that's in the supermarket, uh-huh. right? So even things you'd never imagine like beef jerky, some beef jerkies have 33% sugar in them, which does a few things for a manufacturer. It's, Sugar's a lot cheaper than dehydrated beef. So if you think 33% of the weight of that packet is actually cheap sugar versus beef, that beef jerky becomes really expensive. And then what it does is it makes it addictive. So you're going you're gonna to eat more. Even if you're nourished, you've now got a refined drug in your body that's going to just elicit you to eat more. So to start to become aware is the first stage when we work with people. It's awareness is a, is a big piece. You have to start to look at that because you can't change behaviors that you're mm-hmm. not aware of. The other thing to do is to just like you start to realize in that awareness phase, uh, what happens when you're stressed? You know, what do you do? What's your, what's your, what's the neural pathway you develop? Is it to the freezer? Is it to the little drawer beside your desk is it you know that little place you go on the way home (laughs) you know when you're triggered you know I love that there's an old joke that says you know if there's a parking spot out in front of the bakery I'm meant to go in and of course it took me 11 you know spins around the block before the parking space opened up that's a beautiful metaphor but holy yeah I I feel like there's so many people and I I say this with complete love and compassion I feel like there's so many people that can honestly relate to that they don't necessarily go for you know the glass of wine or they don't go for other types of addictions but something as and it I think what's craziest about because I've studied addiction a lot and the craziest part is you know most other addictions are not necessities in life Whereas food is an actual necessity. We need food to survive. So when you're addicted addicted to something that we need, I think that takes it to just a whole other ball game. It does. It makes it a much more complex problem to solve. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the, the availability piece too, right? It's like you don't find um, free bowls of cocaine at the doctor's office. You don't find, you know... Um, uh, charity events, fundraising with cocaine, you don't exactly, you know, it's not, it's not everywhere. It's not cheap. It's not socially acceptable, but sugar and refined foods, and you can have savory food addictions because a lot of people say, I don't have a sweet tooth when I can see very clearly that they've got, you know, some addiction going on and it's to refined foods because 
you can't get morbidly obese um, on on foods. You just can't. It's it's almost impossible. You have to have someone feeding you um, 24 hours a day to actually for that to happen. But they'll say, I'm, I don't have a sweet addiction. And I was like, yeah, but there's lots of stuff that you're eating that turns into sugar in your body. So a lot of savory chips or pizza uh. or sandwiches, you know, bread, you know, ref- any refined grain, even if it's not sweet, um, will convert to sugar in your body. And you still have a very similar kind of um, addictive response when you eat those foods and they're soothing. I'm very curious having studied addictions and different mental conditions. Do you find a correlation between people who have a sugar addiction and some other mental something going on typically? Um, uh, can you clarify mental or emotional? Or do, you, do you mean like mental dysfunction? Mental, like a mental condition or it could be emotional as well. It could be mental or emotional. Do you yeah. find that there's a heavy correlation to something else when this sugar addiction is present? What I will find in almost 100% of cases is if you have some kind of brain or mental or emotional disorder, um, most of the time people are eating sugar. It's extremely rare for someone to have brain, emotional, mental disorders or malfunction, and they're eating a complete whole food, balanced, natural, living food diet. Mm. Which makes it which, saying, oh, which makes yeah. it even more important to, like the food is the surface level. If that's the case, which I, I completely can understand and I'm not surprised to be honest, I could see why it's just, that's the surface level Go You, you have to go so much deeper and really address the actual underlying issue. Yes. And to give you an example, a really strong example of this is there's a, a well-respected and prominent family therapist, child therapist here in Vancouver who has great success rates. She won't start to work with a child until the family gets off sugar and, and highly refined foods because she knows that her ability to actually affect change within the family is a hundred times harder if their brains aren't being nourished, if they're given, you know, foods that actually create an imbalance and a disruptive environment within their brain and their body. Uh, That doesn't surprise me. And I think that's brilliant. I, I really believe food is so powerful. And especially when it comes to addiction, I'm so into the health and wellness world. But at the same time, even like healthy foods, a lot of them have high, high sugar content. So it's not just a matter of trying to eat clean. You have to really be your own investigator. You really have to do your own due diligence when it comes to informing and educating yourself on what it is you're actually putting into your body nowadays. Yes. And even if it's natural, it doesn't mean that just because it's natural, nature says, here, eat this 365 days a year. And exactly. You know, there, 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 um, people will say, oh, well, you know, we didn't have to worry about this thousands of years ago. Well, there were people who were sick thousands of years ago who, um, were eating natural things, but they were eating natural things in unnatural amounts. If you look at when they did autopsies on Egyptian um, nobility and, you know, the, the royalty and um, nobility is they had lifestyle diseases and they had lifestyle diseases because they had, you know, sweet and addictive things given to them in amounts that they could never source themselves in nature. If they had to source all that honey and make all that bread in nature, um, they would have, one, worked off a lot of energy, but that's not enough. 
um, they wouldn't be needing as much. Like if you start to think of one of the philosophies I teach is the consumption concept. And it's basically, how would you source things? How, how would you eat if you had to source these things in nature? And I ask people, you know, um, imagine having a loaf of bread. What's involved in making a loaf of bread? Well, you grow the wheat, you know, you wait to harvest the wheat, then you thresh the wheat, you separate, you know, the, um, the husks from the grain. There's a lot to do in that. Then you have to grind it. You dry it and grind it, right? And how much bread would you be eating if that's how you had to do it? And then you had to create, you know, the starter um, to actually make that bread rise and then making bread. There's a lot of work involved in that. So when we have to source things ourselves in nature, we have a very different relationship with it. And if you extrapolate onto that and just something very simple, I'll ask an audience, I'll say, what, what would you have for dinner tonight if you were given a choice, an omelet or a chicken? And I always have vegetarians opt out of the, the um, survey. And 90% of the hands in a typical North American or Australian audience will go up when I say chicken and 10% will say omelet. So now given the same choice in nature and you have to go out and get the eggs to make the omelet or you have to catch, kill, pluck, disembowel, bleed and prepare chicken. I said, number one, how many of you become vegetarian? A lot of, <laughs> but I, yeah. right. I said, but if you have to make that choice, you're going to make a very different choice if you're sourcing it yourself. And even if you are the most hardest, you know, hardcore um, carnivore, you're going to think twice about killing an animal that can produce eggs ongoing. Mm -hmm. right because you're going to eat that chicken meal one or two meals depending on how big your family is um and versus having eggs for months or if not years depending on how well that that bird's taken care of so i go back to helping people understand how we're meant to eat as the human species and how far we've actually come from eating how we're meant to eat as the human species and there's a disconnect and again, it comes back to the awareness piece. If you don't understand how we're meant to eat as the human species, if you're just kind of following one diet here and, you know, one fad here, um, you're always at the mercy of the latest scientific information, which people are very clever at manipulating, you know, you, you into thinking. Whereas if you, it's the classic, give a man a fish, he'll, you know, eat for a night, teach a man to fish and he'll eat forever. So my version of that is I want to teach you how to eat like the human species is meant to eat. So you're making decisions from a very informed place where you can't be manipulated by the latest fad or who's selling what. I love it. I love your appreciation and your principles around eating because they really do stem from nature, like where we came from, how we operated and our histories. And it really is going back to nature, the philosophy, just all of it. I really appreciate that about you, Sherry. And I want to dive a little deeper with you now. So what do you wish you'd known when you first started out? I, I think it's probably the, the honesty piece and that the faster you can get to telling the truth and being honest, the happier your life is going to be. Um, I think too that uh, that that inner work of really looking at what you're ashamed of is is the quickest path to liberation that until you look at what you're ashamed of and what you're hiding you know those disowned parts of you you're always going to try to be living a life that's not authentically you and that's always a recipe for unhappiness and sickness or 
How were you able to do that? Like when you say that, I know that's brilliant advice first mm-hmm. off, but like if someone's sitting out there going, well, that's great, Sherry, but how do I do this? What would be like a catapult yeah. or what would be a first step someone could start to do or implement into their lives that would allow them to dive a little deeper to discover themselves? So the first thing to understand uh, about that is we live in a highly distracted life. And the more busy you are, um, the less you're going to actually be able to look at that. And we can actually distract ourselves. We have, you know, uh, a system that's set up right now to encourage massive distraction. Now we've also got a culture that worships how busy you are, how productive, how hard you work, you know, how much you're doing, how, what exciting things you're doing. And so the first thing that I think is super important with all of these things is to get quiet, to allow time for not being distracted, to unplug from that phone as much as you're enjoying the podcasts. You have to take time out to enjoy quiet time in nature. And that means don't have a set of headphones in. Sure, if you're running or on the bike, you know, or you're wanting to multitask, that's great. But you need quiet time as well to actually listen to the inner voice that's always guiding you back. You always have an inner guidance system. Now, depending on how messed up, you know, or how traumatized you were at different times in your life, it just means you've got more work to do. And that's all right. Um, You know, I'm a slow learner. I was a slow learner. So it took me decades to learn this stuff that I see people, you know, your age who are learning it very quickly. So you have to understand that your path is your own. It's unique. Your trauma, you know, and the scars that, um, that leaves on you and your coping mechanisms as much as there are gifts in that and there's always gifts in it you have your own path to follow and I love um, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey and a film in particular that brought this point home to me is uh, uh, the film is called Finding Joe and it's all about Joseph Campbell's hero's journey story and it, it asked this question how do you know if you're on the wrong path And the answer was, there's already a path. (laughs) So if there's already a path that's cut, someone else has made that path. You haven't made your path. You have to make your own path. And it involves a machete. It involves hard work. It involves sweat and frustration and tears, depending on the level of, you know, your path and, and the terrain you have to go through. But what will happen if you're finding someone else's path, your soul's always telling you there's something not quite right about this. Super comfortable. I'm getting adulation and praise from people like Jordan did. You know, everyone wanted to work with him, but his soul was saying, there's something that I'm meant to be doing. There's something that I'm meant to be doing. I don't want to disappoint these people in my life, but there's something I'm meant to be doing. And so my first piece of advice, get quiet, get a book, a pen and a paper and, and it's, it's, you know, unless, of course, you just, you type better, you know, than you write. But you need to start to get in that voice of your soul that's telling you you're off track. Because it will always guide you to get back on track. And it comes in a little voice like, just go for a walk. And then we go, oh, no, I need to finish this. We quelch that voice, right? It'll say, she's right. Get out the pen and paper. Oh, I hate journaling. That's, nothing's going to come of that. You have to start to listen to that voice. You have to get quiet because it will always direct you. There is something deep and knowing it's within you. It is your soul. It's, it's encoded in your DNA. And when you start to listen to that voice, your life will get much more fulfilling. It will feel right. It may not be easier, but it's going to feel right. 
and often we will choose the path because we think it's going to make our life easier and it can actually lead us to feeling not right that something's wrong and it's it's not something that's terribly you know disturbing it's just that you're not on the path so you need to get on get on your absolutely path. a fullness that no amount of food or anything else can fulfill wow yeah. Sherry, I'm all for morning routines. I have a master morning routine. I'm obsessed with people's morning routines and also daily habits for success. So what would you say are your daily habits that you swear by for success and also what your actual morning routine looks like? So one of the things about uh, me, that's um, me living authentically, is I'm a contrarian and freedom is my kind of number one um, it's the most important thing to me. It's no mystery. My business is called sweet freedom. <laughs> um, so I have rebelled against discipline for most of my life and good or bad. It's just been my MO. It's like this incarnation. It's about not being regimented. So um, my business partner once took me to an orange theory fitness class. And I said, Kev, if it's a choice between morbid obesity, sitting on the couch and an orange theory fitness class, I will choose morbid obesity on the couch, hands down. So the thing about my nature is I know I'm a serotonin seeker and not an adrenaline junkie. I love peace. When I was asked on a podcast, you know, um, earlier this year, someone said, what's your favorite sound? Quiet. (laughs) That is my silence is my favorite sound. So For me, the first part of the morning is as soon as I wake up and I have awake consciousness, I start to give thanks, what I'm grateful for. Thank you for this day of life. You know, thank you for my body, da, da, da. I just go through and scroll through what I'm grateful for. And then I go through, you know, it's a prayer that I learned from Oprah and it's God use my life for something greater than me. Help me fulfill, you know, what it is I'm meant to be doing in my life and open my eyes to you know, what that's actually meant to be, because I might have a perception of it that it's not. So I continually look for for that opportunity, give thanks, and just ask, you know, um, uh, for guidance to help those people around me, my family, you know, my friends who are going through difficult times and and things like that. How can I be of service? And then I get up, I go to the bathroom, and um, then I go straight to the kitchen and I... uh, pour a liter of spring water and I squeeze half a lemon into it and I take a bit of that water out and in a little glass I put two teaspoons of apple cider vinegar and a droplet of iodine Um, and then I I have um, some whole food supplements um, just basically because modern living I don't believe that we can't get everything we need from food I'm not one of those supplementers but I do believe in um, having things that can actually facilitate the cleansing of the body and um, a natural using whole foods for chelation. Um, And then I have uh, a break time. So I'm not a, uh, I love coffee, but I have a cup of coffee every other day. Um, That just works for my body. And if I have more than that, it doesn't work for my body. Um, And uh, I wait until I get hungry to eat. And for me, movement is, I, I'm two minutes from the woods and I'm five minutes from the beach. So for me, movement is walking or yoga. Um, and then I work. And unfortunately, I sit for my work. So sometimes I'll stand, but most of the time uh, I sit. And uh, and my work day can vary wildly from filming. We do a lot of uh, content filming for online programs and the marketing materials um, to doing interviews like this. 
um, to uh, writing. I just did voiceover for two videos that we filmed um, before this podcast. And um, yeah, and I do allow time for, so when I take, when I go for my walk, I actually take a book. Um, right now I'm reading Sacred Success um, and I will take time to read um, if the weather allows me to. Um, and then I bring in time in my day to every, every day I try and reach out to someone in my life who I can add value to, um, you know, whether that's my friends or my family or uh, a client or, you know, someone. That's just part of, I think, service is a totally underrated part of, of uh, our, our human experience. And until we really get that, I don't think our souls are really straight. Mm, that's so nourishing. I love your daily habits of success. And what a beautiful, again, way to start the day. So what would you say are some of your self-care and spiritual rituals that you love to practice? Uh, so the meditation and prayer are definitely key. Um, and particularly if I'm stressed, I have a certain piece of music I've been putting on for almost 20 years now, and it just brings me down to, you know, where I can actually start to just meditate. Um, but I'm also, I believe that being creative is a big part of my spirit. And so I have a little studio in my place where I paint, um, or I illustrate my book. I illustrate, there's 50 illustrations in my book, so I'll either paint or do illustrations, something creative. And Cooking's highly creative for me, so it's cooking is a canvas. Um, but I believe that for me, my church is going to the farmers market. So every Saturday, that, or that you'll find me in town, or if, if I can't make a Saturday and during the summer I'll go to a Sunday, you'll find me at a farmers market. And I really believe that connecting with the people who have grown my food and giving thanks, you know, really connecting with them and expressing gratitude for the fact that they're doing something that I'm completely inept at. Um, is a form of actually feeding my spirit and then sharing me sharing meals with people you know um, I think we're meant to eat together as a species and if I can do that at least once a week because I, I live on my own and I'm great with solitude but I think it's really important to share meals with people and I can I can feed people so oh I love all of that really some really significant like such simple acts that we can implement into our lives some practices right there like what a profound effect I mean gratitude and sharing and community and nourishment like it's just it's such a plethora of I think just beautiful ways people can really as you said create that dream life that they want for themselves but and they can do these things starting today absolutely I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in our modern age is thinking that we need some something new that hasn't been done before, some kind of gadget or some kind of hack. And the truth is, is that we're still wired for how we have worked for thousands of years. And that is doing some really simple mm-hmm. things. And it's those very simple things, those things that we that connect us to one another, to ourselves and to nature. Those very things that we stop doing are the very reasons why we indulge in addiction. Absolutely. It's disconnection. I think disconnection is number one. Mm-hmm. Disconnect. I, I think disconnection and lack of purpose, like those two, it but is. that's, that's a disconnect in itself from oneself. So I think just in general, mm-hmm. disconnection is the main thing. I'm very curious, <laughs> no pun intended, what you're curious about right now. Uh, so for me, it's about stepping into my power. 
I think that's probably the the biggest piece. Um, I was raised of a generation of being nice was really important. Um, being conceited was like the worst thing that you could be called at, at school. Even worse than being called a bitch was, oh, she's so conceited, right? Which more often than not was just being mistaken for, gee, she has good self-esteem. Yeah. <laughs> gee, she has healthy boundaries, right? So for me, the thing I'm most curious and what I'm looking at now is that piece of, I don't think I've stepped into even a, you know, uh, 30% of my real power. So that's, that's where I'm. I'm wow. Looking. Look out world. <laughs> look out world. <laughs> right. That's amazing. But something that you failed at. Oh, wow. Uh, we've only got 90 <laughs> minutes. Um, so I often refer to myself as a, a, a slow, I've got a high IQ, but I'm a slow learner. So it wasn't until uh, 12 years ago I was, I was dating someone um, and he said, I think you've got a high IQ. I think you should do an IQ test. And without a word of a lie, I told him IQ tests are BS. Like what, what difference does that make? And to be quite honest, the reason I, I thought that, cause I didn't think I had a very high IQ. Yeah. <laughs> so it was my way of deflecting. So I did the IQ test and um, I did it a second time cause I didn't actually believe it. Um, it turned out <laughs> that I had a very high IQ. Uh, and one of the things that my best friend always said to me is she said, you have a PhD in emotional intelligence and she's got a PhD in psychology. And it's one of my harshest critics, by the uh -huh. way, as well. So I always took that as a huge compliment. But what happened is I realized I actually had a much higher IQ than EQ, which offended me because I wanted to be, I wanted to have the high EQ. But what it meant was, I often was a slow learner, not because I wasn't intelligent, but I let my emotional inabilities and my inability to navigate emotional things get in the way of actually making changes and progress. So um, I'm not a fast learner, but what I am is, is I'm tenacious and I just never gave up. And I think the, the big thing is if you can get people to just get a goal and to work towards it, and to, to be tenacious and not give up rather than thinking about the instant gratification or I'm going to lose weight to fit in this dress or for this event is to actually think in a way when I got this that I'm just going to, I'm going to be the tortoise. I was trying to be the hare and I did that because that was one of my coping mechanisms. Uh -huh. Actually, I felt that I had to hack my way through life because I didn't have the resources or the skills or the intelligence or whatever it took to actually take the proper route. Now it had benefits and it had drawbacks, right? But so to give you an example, we moved 11 times before I'd been to 11 different schools before I was in the eighth grade. So the, my eighth grade was my 11th school. So what I learned is I had to often pretend that I knew shit in order to pass stuff, you know, um, with the curriculum in school and to make friends and all that kind of stuff. So I carried that through my life and that I, instead of studying to become a chef, I got taken on as a second, second chef without papers. And I just, I just applied myself like so focused that a year later when the head chef left, they made me the head chef. And nine months after that, I won star contract out of 97 different, you know, restaurants and contracts in that catering company in Australia, in, in Melbourne. So I always thought that I had to hack my way through it. And, and if I can probably kind of 
pass on the, the downside to that is there's no shortcut to doing the work, the uh-huh. real work. What often happened is I ended up having to do more work as a result of trying to find the shortcut. So would you say that was what you consider the failure in it? Well, there was, there was a, there was a lot of failure along that way because I was trying to, I was trying to shortcut the system. So I, you know, I did seven television pilots when I was in Australia. Um, none of those made it to, to air as a show. Um, you know, I had a cooking school that lasted for seven years, but I never really had the traction mm-hmm. in it. So what, um, what would you say? Yeah, so those... on the flip side, then those were things that you would consider failures, but what would you, what, what was the takeaway that you finally came to the realization through that? Nothing's a failure. Number one, everything's just an opportunity uh-huh. to learn. Like that's, you know, it's, I know it's cliche, but it absolutely is. It's so true. true. There's no so true. Thing. Someone yeah. said the other There's day that really, it just, it dawned on me too. When it was a chat about this. You're either winning or you're learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You win some. Learn exactly. Some. Yeah. Which hurdles <laughs> did you personally face and how did you overcome them? And obviously there's a lot in life that you can go through, but if you could name, say one hurdle that really impacted you that you personally faced and how you overcame it, could you please share that? Well, when I left high school, apart from studying to become a missionary, what I wanted to do really was to have children, lots of them get married and have children. And when I was 19, or I was 20, um, I was traveling through Europe and I was um, raped in Italy. That left me infertile, so I could never have children. Uh, I could never conceive children on my own. I didn't find that out until I was 30. So the biggest hurdle of my life was facing infertility because I had this view that I was going to be a mom and I'd be making the cookies and friends would, you know, my kids would bring their kids around and all that kind of stuff. And my marriage ended and I never wanted to be a single mom. I wanted, I wanted the family thing. Mm -hmm. I wanted that for my child. So the hurdle was reimagining my life without that, without having children, without being a mom and still seeing myself as a whole and successful person. And I don't know, um, I don't know what it's like to be of your generation, but in my generation, and there's, you know, there's a lot of writing that goes on about this, you know, there's a lot of documentation. There is this piece in our society that if you're not a mother, right, if you're a single woman, and you're in your 50s, or your 40s, or even your late 30s, something's not quite right with you. And professionally, you know, relation, all those other things, they pale into significance into the hurdle that's actually created in my life. And there's a lot of perception that if you don't, you know, if you're not a wife and a mother, you're somehow selfish. So I had to overcome those limitations in thinking and societal expectations. And I can assure you, Mandy, I've had many conversations with people who have said things that you would be blown away at how they reinforce those beliefs and how insensitive Mm -hmm. they can be. And so for me, the biggest hurdle was just going, okay, Sherry, this is your life. How are you going to use it? it? It's not what you thought it would be. It's not, it doesn't look like what you hoped and wished it would be. So how do I actually use this life and not feel, um, you know, sorry for yourself in any way? Uh, and how did I go about doing that? I started to learn how to serve. 
really serve, not just to be seen, to be uh-huh. serving, but when I actually, every time I actually stepped into that place where I was truly of service to another human being, and it feels very different than walking up on stage and giving a great presentation, you know? Absolutely. But when I really moved into that space, things shifted mm. for me. Oh, I just had like this wave of beautiful energy. I could picture you saying serve. I knew there was going to be a serve element and literally and figuratively in your case. Wow. Like it was, and just the birthing, I just, I picture the birthing of so many beautiful things that you've created that have taken the place as those children and those things can go and, and do such greatness in the world and are doing such greatness and creating such amazing, powerful, healing abundance in the world. I hope so. I know so. <laughs> Having looked into you, I know so, Sherry. I know so. And just your vibe. I love it. What's a limiting belief you had or have and how did or are you overcoming it? I think because I came from uh, a family without resources that, um, you know, I college wasn't an option. It was never held out. You know, all those things. It was um, poverty. Um and it wasn't just physical poverty, it was mental, emotional, and spiritual po- poverty as well, that they um, somehow uh, diminished my stature. So I would actually raise other people up, you know, as just a bit more worthy of me or, if you know, gave them more significance. And although I got it intellectually, I'm starting to get it on deeper and deeper levels that, that the disadvantages that I had you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, um, were circumstances that in the end were only relevant to the level that I, um, my brain allowed the limitations to happen. Mm-hmm. And there were people who had far less resources in their life who ended up having a lot more. And there were people who had a lot more resources in their life who ended up, you know, having or doing a lot less. So it that's that was the limited thinking is that somehow that the support I did or didn't get determined where I would be and look don't get me wrong I look at people who um, and I study their lives you know particularly women who I really admire and aspire to the level of success they have I've listened to them being interviewed I've listened to their conversations I've studied Mm -hmm. it And they had mothers in particular or a parent, a significant parent figure who was, who taught them some really good self-esteem, boundary and wisdom, you know, teachings throughout their childhood. And it does set you at at an, for sure. Mindset, like mindset, brain training. Yeah. But also deep self-love and self-esteem. Emotionally. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there are such things as people having advantages. There are, um, you know, there is inequality, but that doesn't have to, doesn't have to determine how you finish the, you know, cross the finish line. And the other limiting belief is that not all finish lines are the same. That it's that thing about carving your own path, make your own goddamn finish line. Uh, (laughs) Heck yes. I love that. Yes. Love that. Any, because I, I truly believe anyone can be a winner. It's a matter of 
getting your head in that right mind space in that game on mentality and just shooting for what you want in life. And of course there's going to be hurdles. Of course there's going to be obstacles, but I really do believe that each and every one of us is destined to be a winner. It's a matter of you making that happen for yourself. And getting really honest with yourself. So when you go for something that you want and you get there, ask yourself, is this really it? Uh Right. Or was this thing that I wanted based on, um, people thinking this is, this would be a great thing if I did it or, you know, external validation of any sort or, you know. Yeah. Really just really getting in tune with yourself. The honesty component is key because, you know, unless you're honest, you can't truly progress. That's been a big theme for me as well, but that's why I resonate so much with it because I totally understand. And with that being said, all the stuff that we're talking about, the self-development, but also the diet, the nutrition, the nourishing of yourself and your soul, what support or resources would you recommend? What would be your personal recommendations? So find two, two support communities, okay? One support community is based on the thing that makes you most feel alive. So whether that's rock climbing or that's painting or that's cooking or whatever, find the community that supports the thing that you are most inspired and motivated and your, your passion. And if you can't find your passion, as Elizabeth Gilbert says, find what you're curious in and just keep pursuing what you're curious about until you find the thing that you become passionate about. Or maybe it's just a series of curiosities, but Mm -hmm. find that. And then, and then look at the, your Achilles heel, look at the thing where you're wounded or, you know, the, the lesson you still have to learn and find a community who can help support you to actually move through and grow. And I think it's really important to find the right community because there are communities that will just help you sit in your shit and that's not good. So it's not about sitting in the mire of like, Oh, poor me, or this is what, you know, um, I, you know, Oh, woe is me, or I'm never going to change this habit. So I, I'm one of the things I believe with the 12 step program, I believe it's helped a lot of people, but I don't believe that every single person that's an addict is an addict for life. I think there's a small percentage of people who like say for sugar addiction or alcohol addiction, they can never touch sugar. They can never touch alcohol because it just triggers and all based on their physiology and psychology and all that, but find a community that not just supports you in, in that, that piece of dealing with that piece but helps elevate you to actually grow out of it and beyond it and heal, truly heal. Such amazing advice, Sherry. Bang on, love it. What does a successful relationship look like to you? Uh, Honest. (laughs) Um, So honesty, it's like loving honesty, not brutal honesty. I I remember meeting uh, Brad Blunt and I've met him a few times at conferences. He actually proposed marriage to me and and about 4,000 other women. I'm quite certain of it. Um, and he wrote a book called Radical Honesty, and he's been married seven or eight times. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, maybe radical honesty is not the best thing. How about just loving honesty? I love that. Yeah. So where you're, yeah, you're telling the truth and being aware that your truth does have a cost. And that by not telling the truth, but it doesn't mean that you can't be incredibly loving in how you do. So true. I can personally attest for this one. Uh, I'm usually the mm. mushy kind of loving, take that role normally in relationships, but it's so true. It's, 
I mean, you could literally take the same piece of information or whatever, you know, uh, whatever you want to communicate basically. And if your delivery is atrocious and it's enabling your partner to shut down, something's got to give and something's got to change because that's not, it doesn't matter. Like truth and honesty in relationships is one of the fundamental key elements, which I know for you saying this, of course, you know that, but for people out there, I know it's, it's not easy to tell the truth always. And it's not easy to communicate transparently, but as you said, there's a cost to not saying how you feel. There's a cost to also saying it in a way that your partner cannot comprehend it. So that's, I think that's just as important. The delivery to me is just as important as what's being communicated. Absolutely. And that can often come down to the intention. So what's my intention behind delivering this honest truth is my intention to hurt this person is my intention to bring to light their deficiencies or is my intention to actually bridge a gap and overcome this obstacle that we need to face in order to bring us together? Mm, I've done that. I've done the opposite where I've been on the receiving end of atrocious deliveries and I've literally been standing there going, okay, normally I would want to shut down right now. Like emotionally, I'm so like, well, what just came at me? That's one of the most important questions in my life. Ask what the intention is. Is that person, what is their true intention? Are they coming from a pure and positive place and maybe just the delivery in which they've been taught or they they have ingrained right now? Is that the element that needs the fixing? Because if that's the case, that can change. But if their actual intentionality behind what they're saying is something that is not pure positive, then that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. And when someone's triggered and they've, they've um, framed something in you that, uh, to you that's, you know, in an unhealthy way, it's, you know, the chances are of you saying, was, was your intention good? <laughs> <laughs> the chances are they're going to get triggered, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's about finding. That's why uh, I find that, finding a relationship that works romantically is really about finding mutually compatible craziness. Like, does my crazy actually match up? And can you tolerate my crazy? And can I tolerate your crazy? <laughs> oh, I love that. That's, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's that uh, there's a, I know there's a few quotes that are about that. Like, you know, finding someone with the same level of weirdness as you, <laughs> but it's true. It's yeah. true. It's true. I love it. It is clicky time. Okay. Well, you know, sometimes quickies can be very embarrassing. Exposing, <laughs> so the, the more embarrassing, the better. <laughs> okay. So okay. if you had to recommend one book that could positively change someone's life, aside from yours, of course, what book would it be? The Four Agreements. Why? It uh, gets us to what really matters. It, it, it just basically in very four simple agreements gets us to be honest, um, to tell the truth, to be a person of our word, to not take things personally. Um, and I think uh, it's it's super powerful for, you know, really helping us deal with our wounding in a very constructive way. And if we could get everyone in the, wor- in the world reading that book, there'd be a lot less wars, disagreements, you know. Mm-hmm. And just for listeners, Don Miguel Ruiz, that's the author of that book. It's one of my faves, too. Love it. What quote do you live by and why that quote? Do not allow what you cannot do to interfere with what you can do by John Wooden. And it just, for me, um, there's another quote that kind of marries well with it, which is discipline is remembering what you want because I'm a freedom, you know, 
fighter and finding finding that the discipline that I do have actually leads to me having, you know, the things in life that I actually want. Um, so, and so often why I haven't gotten those things is because I've allowed what I couldn't do to interfere with. Mm, profound wisdom on a scale of one to 10, Sherry, how weird are you? Yeah, I think, um, anyone who's being themselves is weird. Um, <laughs> flag your are- inner unicorn. <laughs> Yeah. And anyone who's normal is not being themselves. That's, that's my kind of uh, philosophy around it. Um, so someone said this to me the other day. <laughs> he said, oh, she said, she said, Sherry, you're not normal. And I mean that as a compliment. I said, I take it as a compliment. Thank you very much. I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's once, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in trying to make us normal to fit in, to fit to a certain uh-huh. ideal, but the truth is, is our path to happiness and self-actualization is just being ourselves. And that manifests. We're like a mosaic, you know, really complica- complex and complicated tapestry. And if you're being true to yourself, you know, we don't all think the same way, feel all the same way. And especially we don't all express ourselves the same way. Absolutely. I mean, I often think the word weird to me is no different than authentic. They really aren't because yeah. if you're, if you're being Absolutely. authentic, chances are you're probably going to appear weird. You're never going to please everybody. Right. So if you're being quote unquote weird, I always take, or like not, you're not normal or you, you know, you're original, all those things. I always take it as a compliment. What do you feel most grateful for in your life? Oh, without a doubt. I'm always my mother's love. Um, we, we had a rocky start, you know, given everything that she had on. And I often say, you know, I was hard on my mom, judgmental when I was younger, but in my twenties, I quickly learned based on, you know, character and resilience that I don't know if I could have done as good a job as what she did, given the resources that she had and what she coped with. Um, but that, that person in your life who sees you, gets you and loves you no matter what, in, in spite of it. And as an example of unconditional love, I often think to myself, if that was the only thing I ever accomplished in this world, it would be worth coming to this incarnation. Oh my gosh. It makes me want to cry because that, yeah, that's how mm-hmm. I feel with my mom too. She's just such a source of unconditional love. If you can somehow feel that for yourself, I think that's freedom. I really do. Certainly. Oh, yes. so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Jerry. Okay, if you could have lunch with one person, alive or dead, who would it be? Oh, that one's the hardest. Oh, um, uh, I would actually have lunch with my friend Marie, who passed away from breast cancer oh. five years ago, um, because I don't think I was a good as friend as I could have been. Um, and I wished I could have lunch with her to go back and say, I'm sorry, I wasn't a better friend. Mm. I wished I could have been there. I moved from Australia to Canada at the time when she needed me the most. And um, I regret that. And so that's who I'd like to have mm. lunch with. Oh, I love that answer. Do you have any guilty pleasures? <laughs> you're all about <laughs> sensation and stimulation i know you lady yeah. share, share the deets what am. are your guilty pleasures i'm totally <laughs> i um, love it the only thing the only thing that stops me from having chocolate ice cream and cake all day is not wanting to feel like crap uh, the next day 
that seriously, that is the truth. But so I often say, I believe that chocolate is God's way of saying he loves us and wants us to be happy. Um, and that I'd much rather live to a hundred with chocolate than 120 without it. But saying that I have one caveat, I only eat like the best chocolate uh, in the world, which the, the price of it alone limits my consumption. Um, and so this is single origin, handmade chocolates, two ingredients, um, unrefined cane sugar and, and chocolate, cacao beans. So it's fair trade. It's not just fair trade, it's direct trade. So instead of, you know, um, the farmer getting, you know, a few dollars a pound for working incredibly hard, most chocolate that we consume um, on, on this planet is made from slave labor. Um, from people in the chocolate industry who live in squalor so that we can have cheap chocolate. So um, I have, it's from a company in Eureka, California. It's called Dick Taylor. Um, and they, they treat and um, reward their farmers well. They, they produce in a really ethical way environmentally. It's literally the best um, tasting chocolate on the planet. And so when you have it, it's like eating gold. It's, it's, you know, it's expensive and delicious and it takes very little to satiate and satisfy. Oh man, I want to come over and eat your chocolate lady. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds so good. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's all I can think of. Like, uh, I'm going to drive over right now and just eat some chocolate with you. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So you're going to love Like, I ask this question to everybody, but you especially, I feel like, will really love, maybe love or hate this one, depending on how you're feeling about it. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Vegetables. (laughs) Okay, now for real. What's that? Yeah, I hate that question. Um, And it's usually um, because... You know, it's like if you could only have one sexual pos- position, if you're if if sex was your thing and you're like, if you could only have one sexual position, right? if music was your thing and you go, what is the only song you ever if you could only listen to one song? You know, I totally you know, know but I'm going to make you answer. You have to answer it. So pick something. Uh, look, I, if you try and think about the thing that I would not get tired yes. of, because um, that's that's what uh, you're pretty asking. much you're not asking what you're. You're not asking what no, your favorite just, food is. If you could only eat food. one food for the rest of your life, for whatever reason, what would it be? It would probably be potatoes because you can do so many different things. Mm. With them. Well, there's some creativity for our foodies out there to get more creative with your potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> there's a guy I interviewed, um, Andrew Spud Taylor, who um, was morbidly obese and he went on the potato diet. He only ate potatoes for a year. Um, uh, but I wouldn't have just steamed or baked them like he would. But but I think about it because I think about rice. I think about broccoli. It it certainly wouldn't be chocolate. I know I'd tire yeah. of chocolate. You know, if that was my yeah. only food, you you actually would go to things more bland. But potatoes give you a there's there's they're incredibly versatile. Um, yeah. So Dynamism with the not so boring potato. <laughs> What, what's yours? I'm Ooh, curious. throwing it on me. I love it. Oh. Yeah, yeah. On guard. Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, I have thought about this, yeah. obviously, when I created the question. I mean, there's a few, but if I had to really dwindle it down, what's something that I absolutely, if I could only eat one. You know what food I, I will, I'm always in the mood for, I never tire of, is actually watermelon. 
Right. There you go. I don't know. It's, I yeah. Do I don't know. I that's just do the it. first thing that comes to mind. I love water or berries. Yeah. I mean, I know this, that's two now, but like, I don't know something, something I do love sweets obviously, but I don't know something about those are just, they're very, um, they're cooling, they're refreshing. They're, I mean, there's a lot of electrolytes, especially in the watermelon. So for hydration, all of that, it's, that's, that's a toughy question though, I will say. So thank good on you for throwing it back to me. <laughs> what are you most excited about that's coming up for you? Uh, I just auditioned for a series, a documentary series that's, um, uh, going to air either on Netflix or the Disney Channel, and it's um, to be the host of the series. And I literally feel like it's the thing that I was absolutely born to do. Like all of my life experiences culminated in this concept that they pitched. And I just sent an audition uh, video. We sent in. I did a interview with a farmer who was literally quite stoned, <laughs> <laughs> super high when when we did the interview. So it was really tough. But um, the production company said it was really inspiring and that they would keep me posted. So I've entered a lottery. Um, God knows they're interviewing people from around the world. They found it because they watched my TED Talk, which is over 10 years yeah. old. And um, yeah, so they, they watched the TED Talk and contacted oh. me. So I feel like it's a little miracle. Yay. Fingers so. crossed for you, Sherry. I really, yeah. I hope that if that's, yeah. I always say, I'm not, I'm not one to say like, I hope you get it. I'm more apt to say, you know, if it's truly meant for your evolution, yeah. I really hope that you do get it. Thank you. That's a perfect way to phrase it. And so as you know, this is Pave Your Paradise podcast. I know you're familiar with what this podcast stands for. So I am really curious to know what paradise means to you. How would you personally define paradise? It's where you're contributing in a way that you don't have to worry about your basic needs being taken care of. It's about having a place for everything. It's about having not too much stuff that you have to worry about, but having enough stuff that it brings a you know, uh, an elegance and beauty in your life. Um, it's about having people that love you, that you can love back, um, and to be able to uh, grow um, and uh, self-actualize, you know, to have that space to be able to self-actualize. Mm, amazing. Is there anything you wish we talked about today? There's so often we try and tackle big problems in life, and we think we're meant to do it on our own. And as we become more digitally connected, we become more isolated. And we think we have more resources because we can get anything at our fingertips online. And the truth is, is that in order to actually get help and overcome obstacles, and I really think getting sugar is a big obstacle that if you get handled, it literally has the potential to you for you to have that life that you absolutely love and without dealing with that it's going to block your ability to get that it's an efficient path to get it and so i would encourage you to look at joining our community or your community or a community that helps facilitate you starting to learn how to nourish yourself truly from i think everyone listening will feel just the love and compassion and caring from you how can i and the audience of listeners serve you? How can we help you in the highest way? Okay, well, we want to help over 1 million people beat sugar addiction. So that's a big, big agenda that we have. So we have that through a seven-day challenge. We've got a 21-day challenge, and we've got an eight-week online program. I'm going to give you a link to put 
in your resources that people can actually sign up for that program. Um, they can actually um, watch a masterclass, a four-part masterclass um, in order to do that, and they will get, um, I think it's 33% off the program just because they've come through uh -huh. here. Um, so we can provide that link. We have tons of resources on uh, Sweet Freedom Life YouTube and sweetfreedomlife.com. Um, and we refer to getting on the sweet freedom train, uh, and just get on the train, just hop on, on some, in some way or another. Um, just don't wait until you're ready. Uh, Stephen Pressfield says it best, you know, begin before you're ready, start before you're ready. Um, cause if you wait until you're ready, um, the chances of it rarely comes that, you know, don't wait until you get sick or get a chronic or a terminal diagnosis to actually address this, just start. Uh, absolutely. And yes, I'm so, so excited that I'm able to offer this course that you're putting on to my audience, to my listeners. If you guys are listening out there, I would highly, highly suggest, even if you're not sure if the program's right for you, check out what Sherry has going on because as she said, she has tons and tons of resources. Maybe there's something that you're not even aware of right now. And if something doesn't feel quite right, if something doesn't feel like you are living in your highest form, and that could be any area of your life, could be, as you know, with Pave Your Paradise, it's anything from relationships to health to your business to other lifestyle things going on. Check out what she has going on because maybe it'll even inspire or, or just even trigger something else that you're not even yet aware of that you could improve on or that you can at least learn about yourself. And Sherry, where is the best place to find you and to learn more about you and your community and what you're doing in this world? It will be sweetfreedomlife.com. Okay, and that has, like, links to everything, your social handles, all of that. Yeah, it does. Amazing, yeah. amazing. Okay, well, I am feeling much sweeter than the beginning of our interview. I love it. I have <laughs> such good vibes with you, and I'm so grateful that you can share all of your words of wisdom and your love and all the sweetness that you are creating in the world with the audience today. So thank you so much for joining me on today's Pave Your Paradise podcast episode. Well, it's been my absolute pleasure. And I want to congratulate you for being such a positive and powerful force, asking great questions and inviting people to step into those beautiful lives that they want and being there their life cheerleader. Oh, my heart's so happy right now. Thanks so much for joining me. If there's anyone you know who you think could benefit from hearing today's episode, it would mean the world if you'd share it with them. Love what you heard? Then please subscribe. If you really love what you heard, then please leave a review with your honest and loving thoughts. This podcast wouldn't be possible without your support. If you feel called to, please make contributions to my podcast fund that helps me to keep it going strong, bringing on amazing guests for you, and to continue the ripple effect of spreading goodness in the world. I appreciate you, your time, and your energy, and I love hearing from you, so drop me a line on social media. As always, I'm wishing you a positive day and your own piece of paradise. Until next time, sending you love and light and keep shining.